or John, John 14, 8 to 21, and we'll study 12 to 14. 14, 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me, because I live, you shall live also. In that day, you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you that you have given us your promises, your word that teaches us about the assurances that we have, that we are equipped, we are equipped with all of the grace we need to live our Christian life. And also, Father, you do hear us. You do hear us and you ask us to depend on you through prayer. We pray, Lord, we'll understand this or these truths in a better way today. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. When we come now to verse 12 in John 14, we've already seen that the Lord Jesus has explained to Philip that his desire to see the Father and therefore to commune, to fellowship with the Father is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That is, he sees the character of the Father, he sees the power of the Father, he sees the virtue of the Father in the Son, in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He's taught that in verses 8 to 11. Believe in Christ, believe in his words, and believe in his works, all of the good works that he performed. Good works in terms of his own life and in terms of the miracles he performed. Believe in them. But also, in verses 12 to 14, he's giving an assurance to Philip and the the other disciples who are listening, this assurance that the things Jesus has done, though they are great and good things, they will do even greater works, verse 12, and that they will be dependent on the Father or dependent upon the Son to do that which they pray about. These are the two main subjects he covers in verses 12 to 14. In verse 12, greater works, and then in verses 13 and 14, this dependence on prayer, dependence on prayer 
for them to be sustained in their Christian life. First now, verse 12. He begins by saying, truly, truly, I say to you. When he introduces his assertions, his statements, his truth statements, he, especially in the book of John, repeats truly, truly. He says it twice, and he says it on several other occasions that he is saying something that is very important and very serious. They should pay attention. They should listen up. And who is saying it? I say to you. Who is the I? The teacher and the Lord. Who is the I? God in human flesh. Who is the I? The shepherd, the good shepherd, the door of the sheep, the light of the world. Therefore, they should listen and pay attention to what he has to say. This should not be necessary. But often, because we are dull, because we are sleepy in our Christian life and lazy in our Christian life, we need a word like that. Truly, truly, listen. I say to you, pay attention to who's talking to you. This, in other words, is Christ's way of saying, thus says the Lord. Like the prophets of the Old Testament said repeatedly, thus says the Lord. And so what is so important or what is so striking that he is about to say? He who believes in me, the works that I do, shall he do also. The works that I do, he shall do also. Now, this passage has been distorted by charismatics who desire to do more miracles in number and more miracles in terms of magnitude, the kinds of miracles, than Jesus Christ himself. They want to do greater miracles both in kind and in number, and they base it on a passage such as this passage. Jesus did great miracles, therefore, he says, we're going to do greater miracles. We, currently in the modern church, we will do greater miracles both in number and in kind. Charismatics believe that based on a verse like this one. That's what they say, Jesus promised. Therefore, they have the authority to do what they do and to say what they say. However, is that what he's saying here? Is he talking about that? Because if if he's talking about that, then the charismatics are right. But may we ask questions of the charismatics? For example, since the year 2020, since March, April last year till now, have the charismatics gotten rid of the Wuhan flu, this flu that has been foisted upon the world, which, which the, those who are malicious are trying to do some very wicked and malicious fatal things to the world population with that, right? That's what their intention is. It so happens that it's not as deadly as they wanted it to be, but that's what their intention is. Well, why hasn't, why hasn't Kenneth Copeland, why, haven't, why hasn't Joyce Meyer, why hasn't any charismatic, anybody, gotten rid of that disease, both for himself and for his churches? Why haven't they done that? Not only in the United States, but worldwide, because charismania is worldwide. It's a worldwide disease. 
It's a disease worse than the Wuhan flu, COVID-19. It's worse than that because it produces eternal death. They haven't gotten rid of it, neither for themselves nor for their followers. They have not obliterated it by their word of faith, so-called. They haven't done it and produced greater miracles. In fact, some of their own people have died because they're not taking care of themselves properly, either not breathing enough oxygen naturally or isolating themselves, creating misery and depression for themselves. This produces death. They haven't gotten rid of it, yet they use this verse, which shows they don't have that power. Jesus hasn't given them the power because they believe in him to do greater works. So that explanation does not fit with the evidence. The evidence of Scripture, because nowhere in Scripture does it say that the church is going to have this kind of great miraculous supernatural power to be able to heal everyone and everything of every kind of ailment or accident that they experience. Nowhere does Scripture teach it. In fact, it teaches the opposite. Also, another interpretation which is likely not the case, but some interpreters take it. It's not as deadly as the first interpretation. They say that this verse, verse 12, applies only to the apostles. Only to the apostles who would do greater works in the sense that greater number of works over their ministry. Since Jesus' ministry was only three and a half years, they say that the apostles and the 12 apostles, because Matthias takes Judas Iscariot's place, that these 12 apostles and other disciples in the post-apostolic church in the book of Acts, that they spread the gospel through mighty wonders. And they did more mighty wonders since they took from, the, from AD 30 until the death of John the Apostle, AD 95, they had 65 years, whereas Jesus only did so within a three and a half year period. So they say that this applies to only the 12 apostles. Now, that position is not a dangerous position, though I don't think it is the correct position, because he uses this phrase, he who believes in me. He who believes in me, and not only that, but whatever he's saying here is not to be restricted to the 12. It's not to be restricted to the 12, because often we go to John chapters 14, 15, 16, 17, not only to know what it means for the 12, but what it means for us, correct? And it would be unusual for this verse to be simply or merely applicable to the apostles in the context. It's not necessary for it to be that way in this context. But let's go back to that phrase, he who believes in me. This phrase, he who believes in me, is used in several places in the book of John. John 3, let's illustrate this with three examples. John 3 36. John 3, 36. We're going to show that this phrase, he who believes, 
has a general use, a general applicability, not only specifically to the apostles. John 3, 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. He who believes in the Son applies generally, not only to the apostles. John 6, 47. John 6, 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. He who believes has eternal life. Not only applicable to the hearers in the synagogue, but also applicable to us. He who believes. John 11, John 11, 25. John 11, 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. Applicable to Mary, Martha, Lazarus, any of the contemporaries, but also to us, does it not? He who believes. And in the same way, this is how perhaps we should take it in John 14, 14, 12, that it is applicable, generally speaking. Therefore, if it is applicable generally throughout history to all disciples of Christ, to all Christians, in what sense does he mean it? What are the greater works? The works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. What are the works or the greater works that we shall do? Well, they would be, in this interpretation, greater works in number, and the greater works in number would have to be the supreme supernatural work of God, the salvation of sinners, the the salvation of souls, which is also true of the apostles. They did so for 65 years, from AD 30 to AD 95, since we know from history the death of John the Apostle, AD 95, and church history teaches that he was the last of the apostles to die. And he died a natural death, whereas most or all of the rest died by persecution. They were murdered, um, martyred in their faith. So that happened. They certainly did evangelize, but don't we also? Don't we also? And aren't there many more believers since the time of the apostles worldwide and throughout history? So this would apply to us in that sense, in the sense that the greater works are the works that we accomplish in the preaching of the gospel. When we proclaim the gospel of Christ, greater in numbers are those people who are miraculously saved, who are brought from death to life, from the domain of Satan to the domain of his beloved son. That's what happens in terms greater, greater in number, producing the supernatural work of conversion when we preach as it says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. We do have a participation, although the ultimate work is the work of God, we participate by planting and watering when we preach the gospel. 
Also in 12, he tells us the reason why. What is the reason it's going to be greater works these shall he do? He says so, because I go to the Father. Because I go to the Father. Going to the Father is not something new to them. Though at times they are astonished and they are perplexed, they are wondering, what are you talking about? It shouldn't be new to their ears because he has spoken of this before, going to the Father. We'll talk about him going to the Father and then what he means, because I go to the Father. First, going to the Father, he says in 7.33, John 7.33, Jesus therefore said, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. I go to him who sent me. The fact of his departure. John 14. John 14, 1 to 3. He taught them not to be troubled. And then he says that I go to prepare a place for you. John 14, 2. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. He's teaching that he's going away. Going away where? Going away to the Father. 14 and verse 28. John 14, 28. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Because I go to the Father. So he is going away. He's going away to the Father. Why is he going away to the Father? And why is it that this is a transition? Why is this significant that he is going to the Father? The reason he puts the focus on because I go to the Father has to do with Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Before he ascends into heaven, shall we actually begin reading at verse 4? Let's read verse 4. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest Part of the earth. What is it? The baptism of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, who would come upon them, 
And they were supposed to wait in Jerusalem until that time happened, which happened 10 days after his ascension. It happened on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And when the Holy Spirit came upon them in that miraculous way, those apostles and other disciples, they received this power, which included the miraculous, yes, but it empowered them to proclaim the gospel. Which power is still available to you and me to proclaim the gospel? To proclaim the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. But we might ask, why is it dependent upon his ascension? Because God ordained it that way. He just said so in Acts chapter 1. That the Holy Spirit will not come or descend in this powerful way until I ascend to the Father. God the Father ordained that Jesus' ascension should happen before the descension of the Holy Spirit to descend upon us and to give us power. Not only that, but when the Holy Spirit has descended upon us, is Jesus in heaven twiddling his thumbs? Is Jesus in heaven not doing anything? No. He is seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. He's at the right hand of the Father. The the right hand of the Father is the hand of power. So that sequence of events, the ascension needed to occur for Jesus to sit at the right hand of the Father so that His intercession at the right hand of the Father is our hope and is the source for our prayers, for is the source for our success in prayers. Romans 8, Romans 8, 33 to 34. Romans 8, 33 to 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. What's Christ doing at the right hand of the Father? Interceding for us. He's interceding. It, does, it means that He is there as the source of our power, the source of our answers to prayer at the right hand of the Father, because the right hand of the Father is the side of the power of the Father. God's power is sent out by means of Christ. The power of the Father sent through Christ. Also, Hebrews 1, Hebrews 1, verse 3. Hebrews 1, 3. And He, Christ, is the radiance of His glory, the Father's glory, and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ, he represents the Father. He is the exact representation of the Father and upholds all things by His powerful Word at the right hand of the Father. 
That's why it says he intercedes for us. And that's why he says in John 14, 12, because I go to the Father. Because I go to the Father relates to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the powerful intercession of Christ at the right hand of the Father on our behalf. On our behalf. Now we come to verse 13. Keeping this in mind, we come to verse 13. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Son may be glorified, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. First we notice he says, whatever you ask. Whatever you ask. He says it in this way to encourage us to ask for whatever. To ask widely, to ask generously in terms of the many, many issues, the many, many dilemmas of life that occur to ask Him, to pray to Him. He's asking, encouraging us to be very, very wide-sweeping in what we ask Him. Because He doesn't want us to think, and some people do think, well, I don't want to bother God with this request. God is too busy, or God doesn't care. It doesn't matter. Some people think that way. Even within Christianity, they think that way, that I don't want to bother God. There's no need to ask about this or ask about that. But here, this expression, whatever you ask, is meant to do the opposite. It's meant to encourage us to ask, generally speaking, to ask repeatedly and constantly. For example, Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 7 to 12. Matthew 7, 7 to 12. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it shall be opened. Or what man is there among you, when his son shall ask him for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he shall ask for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do so for them. For this is the law and the prophets. He encourages us to ask, seek, and knock. Because eventually, God provides. And God should be compared to a father. A father won't give to his son a stone or a snake, will he? When he's asking for a loaf or fish? He's not going to give him stones and snakes. And if we by nature are evil and we know what's right and good to give to our family, won't our Heavenly Father give good gifts to us? Whatever is good for us, whatever is right for us, He will give to us. This is an encouragement to pray. Pray to our Father because He is a loving, kind, beneficent Father. 
ask of Him. And He knows how to treat us, so we ought to know how to treat one another. Verse 12. Do to others as you would do. Do to others as you want them to do for you. Luke 11. Luke 11, 1 to 4. Luke 11, 1 to 4. Another encouragement to pray and to pray in the right way. Luke 11, verse 1. And it came about that while he was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Now also, Luke 18. Luke 18. That, in, that passage was the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer. So some essential matters to address to God. And God will honor that kind of prayer. But then how persistent should we be on these kinds of matters? How persistent? Luke 18 answers that. Luke 18, 1 to 8. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God, and did not respect man. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God, nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, lest by continually coming she wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, shall not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? We're supposed to pray at all times, even First Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing, pray at all times. And compare God to this unrighteous judge. God is a righteous judge, but even the unrighteous judge doesn't want to be worn out by this repetitive widow who keeps coming to him, incessantly coming to him with her plea for justice. She's pleading for justice And then finally he gives her justice. But God's a righteous judge. So why should we not persist? And eventually, God, it says here, will speedily bring justice for us on the earth. So cry to him and don't be discouraged. So when Jesus says, and whatever you ask, he wants us to ask for the right kinds of things. Matthew 7, Luke 11. The right kinds of things, our daily needs, our daily bread, for us not to be led into temptation, for us to forgive others as they forgive us. Those are the kinds of matters 
that we must pray. And it says, whenever you ask. That's the kind of thing he means by that. And to do it persistently. Don't give up. Don't give up on those kinds of prayers. But what did we not see? It does not say in any of these passages of Scripture, pray that I might get rich quick. Pray that I might have $10 million or $10 billion in my bank account by next year. And why next year? Why not tomorrow? Why not tomorrow? And any number of wicked and crazy things that people pray. People pray about all kinds of wicked and crazy things. And the Bible doesn't promise any of that. The kinds of prayers are the kinds of prayers when he says, what, whatever you ask, whatever according to the way the Bible describes what the whatever is. To emphasize this point, let's go to James chapter 4. James 4, 1 to 4. James 4, 1 to 4. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Why is it that their prayers are not answered? He says in verse 3, because you ask with wrong or evil motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. That's why their prayers aren't answered, because they have evil motives. An evil motive has to be that which is contrary to Scripture, right? 1 John 3. 1 John chapter 3, 21 to 22. 1 John 3, 21 to 22. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. Whatever we ask, similar phrase, whatever you ask, Jesus said. He says, whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. He puts two conditions here to it. We keep His commandments. Therefore, we cannot be disobedient and at the same time ask God, similar to James chapter 4. And also, we must be pleasing in His sight. How are we pleasing in His sight? It's another way of expressing obedience to His commandments, keeping His commandments. These are the two ways He explains or illustrates, clarifies what He means. Yes, we'll get whatever, but whatever that conforms to His commandments And whatever is pleasing in his sight. 
First John 5. First John 5, 14 to 17. First John 5, 14. And this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not leading to death. In 14 and 15, he encourages us with confidence to approach God in prayer. To ask anything, he says. We ask anything. Verse 14. Verse 15. In whatever we ask. That's the encouragement to pray. But what's the qualification? It says in 14. If we ask anything according to his will. Well, what if we ask something contrary to his will? Then he won't hear us. He won't hear us. He won't honor us. He won't listen and give us the request that we have asked. If it means I will not be sick until the day I die. Well, even when we die, we die of our last sickness. People, if people have that kind of request, God's not going to honor that. And by the way, the, the, the faith healers, the health and wealth preachers, Will they divulge to us their doctor's reports? Will they say and swear and swear in court that they have never visited a doctor? That they have no illnesses, no maladies whatsoever? And they've never had to consult a doctor, never had to take medicine, never had to have surgery on anything? Will they do that? No. Because they're liars. They don't believe in this. They don't act and and ask in accordance with God's will. They're just a bunch of charlatans pretending to believe. They don't believe. And even John the Apostle, listen to this. He says, if it's according to his will, right? According to his will, 14. In 16 and 17, especially 16, he's explaining that there is a condition where we shouldn't be asking. So even the anything of 14, the whatever of 15, is not to be an absolute anything, an absolute whatever, but it's meant to encourage us to generously, generally pray to God for things. But here's an exclusion. Don't pray for a brother committing sin leading to death. Do not pray for him. He excludes something from our requests to God. So let's pray. And let's pray in accordance with His will. We had read earlier in our service, James 1. Remember, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach. But let him ask in faith. If we need wisdom, we should pray for that. These are the kinds of things we should pray. Pray for our daily needs, Pray for wisdom, pray for godliness, pray for growth, conformity to Christ. 
All of these are things included in the whatever. Whatever you ask. And whatever you ask, John 14, 13, in my name, that will I do. Here in John, he says, in my name. That also is a modification or qualification of whatever you ask. Ask in my name. What does the Bible mean by in my name? In the name of Christ. Why is it that Christians often end their prayers by saying, in the name of Christ? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, it has two main qualities or two main meanings of why we pray in the name of Christ. One, the authority or power of Christ. And number two, the virtues or the character of Christ. One, the power or authority of Christ. And two, the character and qualities of Christ. These are what are meant by this statement, in my name. For the authority part, John or Acts, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, verse 17. Acts chapter 4, verse 7, not 17, 4, 7. Acts 4, 7. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? What power or in what name have you done this? And they say, it's the name of Jesus. It's the name of Jesus where the authority or power resides. So that there is legitimacy to the healing in this case. Or in our case, to legitimacy to the prayer. Our prayers are valid because they are in the name or authority or power of Christ, Christ Jesus in his. Chapter 19, the book of Acts, chapter 19, verse 15. 19, 15, 19, 15. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? The evil spirit. The evil spirit here is recognizing the name of the Lord Jesus, as we read in verse 13. Evil spirits in the, the name of the Lord Jesus. I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. They knew, the evil spirits and even others, they knew that only by the authority or only by the power of the name of Jesus, the true Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, could someone be exercised of demons? Could a demon leave a person? Only by the name of Jesus, not in the name of anyone else. That's where the power is in order to accomplish the good result of being freed from demon possession. Okay? That's in terms of the the power and authority from the book of Acts. Remember also when Michael the archangel disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, he did not dare pronounce against him 
a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Jude 9, verse 9. Why did he say, The Lord rebuke you, and did not dare pronounce him a railing judgment? He, Michael the archangel knew his own authority, his own name means nothing. That's why he said, called upon the name of the Lord. May the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord rebuke you. That's why we pray in the name of the Lord. But it's also according to the character of Christ. The virtues of Christ, the character of Christ. Do we have any goodness to present to the Lord? Do we have any righteousness to present to the Lord? No. So that's why we approach the Lord in the name of Christ. We approach Him in the name of Christ that He might answer us because of the virtues of Christ, the righteousness of Christ. Hebrews. Hebrews, if we were to do a study of this subject, Hebrews chapters 5 to 10 or 1 to 10, but especially 5 to 10, explain this very truth. Look, for example, at 7.26, Hebrews 7.26. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. Our Christ, our high priest, is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need an animal sacrifice for his own sins first, before he can help the people. He offered up his own body, which was perfect, the unblemished sacrifice. But how does this relate to prayer? Back to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, 14. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Hebrews 4.14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. We draw near to the throne of grace because Christ resisted all sin. Therefore, we can come draw near with confidence to receive mercy and grace in time of need. Also, Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5, after describing how Christ is not like the regular priests, 
he says in Hebrews 5, verse 7. Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. He was heard because of his piety. Piety meaning his godliness. Piety is another word to be godly or godliness. He was heard because of his godliness, his piety. And why was he pious? Why was he godly? Because he had absolutely no sin. So, when we approach the Father in the name of Christ, that's what we mean. Based on his authority or power and based on his character, his virtue. Not because of our goodness, but because of the goodness of Christ. Then, we also find that Christ repeats in verses 13 and 14. John 14, 13 and 14, he says, I will do it. I will do it. He is saying that he is the source of the answer to our prayer. He is the source, not anyone else. He is the source, not anyone else. Isaiah the prophet is very prolific in this matter. In chapters 40 to 48 of the book of Isaiah, he stresses the character of God and the exclusive source of all the good things that might happen to the people come from him. And even actually all of the evil things that happen in the world do not happen unless they are ordained by the God of Israel, whether good or or evil. Let's see in Isaiah 44. We'll see examples in Isaiah 44 and following. 44 and following. We'll see how he says he does it and the contrast is between him and false gods. God is the source and the answer to their prayer, not others. Isaiah 44, 24. 44, 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb. I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone, causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness. Then he illustrates by saying, Cyrus, I will raise up so that you return to Jerusalem and build my house, my temple. God is the only one who is the creator and he makes boasters, diviners, wise men, worldly wise people, fools. He completely disrupts what they want to do. God does so. But who is this God that does so? Let's go to Isaiah 45, 45.20, where he further says the same thing, but then we have a hint as to who this is. Isaiah 
Gather yourselves and come. Draw near, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And is there no other God? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, and all who are angry at him shall be put to shame. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. Don't pray to an idol, a wooden idol. They can't save, they can't do anything. God is the one who declares things well in advance and then fulfills them. He is Lord, He is God, He is Savior, no one else. Everyone is saved only by Him. But to whom should or, or, and will every knee bow? Verse 23. That to me every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance, which is quoted by the Apostle in Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he is the only one that we should be concerned about. He will be the one to do it. He is our loving Lord, gracious Lord, and he will answer our prayers. Also, John 14, Christ said that he will answer prayers that the Father may be glorified in the Son. The Father glorified in the Son. This has been an expression Jesus has mentioned on several occasions. We might remember, for example, John 13, 31. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. 32, if God is glorified in him, God also will glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. John 17, 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. There is no way to glorify the Father without glorifying the Son. And the Son was glorified immediately in that occasion by dying on the cross. And also, though, those who follow the cross, when they are faithful in following the cross, they're exalting the Son, but when they exalt the Son, they glorify the Father. That's the way it works. When we glorify the Son through the cross, we glorify the Father. That's how it all works, and it will work that way until the very end. For example, 1 Peter 4, 11. 1 Peter 4, 11. 4, 11. Whoever speaks 
Let him speak, as it were, the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And as we said before, Philippians 2, 9-11, Every knee should bow of those who are that are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the only way to glorify the Father, through the Son. The Father is glorified through the Son. And also, one final point to make. We take it from verse 14. Who is the direct object of the asking? If you ask me, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Asking Christ. Are we to pray to the Father? Are we to pray to Christ? Are we to pray to the Holy Spirit? We are to pray to the Father in the name of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the typical and usual way in which we pray. To the Father, in the name of Christ, by the Holy Spirit. That's how we should pray. By the will and influence of the Holy Spirit. But the Bible does not say we never pray to the Son or never pray to the Spirit. In fact, this is something that we find in several places, at least in several clear places in the New Testament, that prayers are offered to the Son, to Jesus, to the Son of God. This is an important aspect of our belief in the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. Those who deny the Trinity, who reject it and call it heresy and polytheism, they say we should never pray to the Son. Never pray to the Son, never pray to Jesus. But the Bible teaches we should. Right here we have it, John 14, 14. Easy verse to remember. John 14, 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Ask me, Jesus said. He didn't say ask the Father, though that would also be true and right. He says ask me. We have prayers to the Son in the New Testament. Let's see some examples of this. First ones come from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, verse 59. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He called upon the name of the Lord Jesus. This is a prayer because Jesus has ascended into heaven. It's a prayer. He called on his name. Acts chapter 9, Acts 9, 14. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Call on your name. And this is Ananias talking to the Lord Jesus in prayer, in a vision. Call on your name. Also, chapter 
Acts chapter 9, it says 9.21. 9.21. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? And who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? They are amazed that Saul or Paul is now a convert because he used to persecute those who prayed to Jesus Christ. 22.16. Acts 22.16. Ananias, when he met Paul after his conversion and was about to baptize him, he says in Acts 22.16, And now, why do you delay? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins after calling on his name. Call on his name. On whose name? The name of Christ. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. In addressing the Corinthians, he calls or says this about them. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. And also verse 9. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We were called to fellowship with Christ. How do we fellowship with Christ? Isn't fellowship personal communication between two persons? Fellowship with Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 16, 22, our benediction. It says, it ends by saying, Maranatha. Maranatha is a phrase that means, O Lord, come. It's a brief prayer to Jesus to come again. O Lord, come. Maranatha means, O Lord, come. 1 Timothy 1, 1 Timothy 1 and verse 12. 1 Timothy 1, 12, where the apostle says, he thanks Christ. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord. Why is he thanking him? He's thanking him in prayer because he's praying to him for his gift of apostleship and salvation. 1 John 1, 1 John 1, verse 3. 1 John 1, 3. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And Revelation 22, 20. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the Apostle John praying to Jesus, saying, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. These are prayers 
to Christ. Therefore, it is right and good for us to pray to Christ. Not to pray to angels, not to pray to deceased ancestors, not to pray to Mary, not to pray to idols, but to pray to the one true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And one might wonder, do we have fellowship with the Spirit? Do we pray to the Spirit? Yes. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. So, we ought to pray to Christ. And this is proof of His divine nature. Let's then now be devoted to prayerfully evangelizing the world and meeting our needs. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.